hello there and welcome to episode number 212 of the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. Number two in the world for communication skills. That's pretty impressive. And today we have a very exciting guest and it's our first time to have a repeat guest. Chris Fenning is from England, but he's now living in the Netherlands, I believe. And he was on the show in 2021, and he is trained as an engineer. He's not practicing as an engineer, but he has that engineering, problem-solving, process-leading approach to communication that so many of my technical friends and clients find helpful. And in fact, he's really good at giving frameworks to put your message in a framework, which helps people to understand it. So you're going to love to talk to Chris. He's even going to give us some email tips. Don't forget to get your copy and a copies for your friends and your frenemies and your maybe your nieces and nephews of the Practical Guide to Effective Communication. Get recognized for the contribution that you're already making for the value that you're already adding. It's a very different approach to communication from what you normally get. It's very uh, intense. There's a lot in there and I really think you'll get value from the Practical Guide to Effective Communication by Laura Camacho. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on today's guest, Chris. Great to see you. Tell us what you've been up to. Oh, Laura, it is a real pleasure to be back on Speak Up, and you're making me blush. I'm glad we're not using the video for this. <laughs> for this. What an introduction. Thank you. And thank you for having me back. What have I been up to? Oh, well, anyone who's listened to the previous episode probably won't be surprised to hear that I've moved house a couple of times since we last spoke, but this is the last move. We're in our forever home, so I've family chaotic travels that we talked about two years ago have settled down and we're well established. And then beyond that, I've had a couple of books published. I've worked with some names that you might recognize, so Google and NATO and Pepsi, a few a few fairly yeah, well-known brands. Yeah, there. Moderately well-known, yes. Yeah, if you haven't heard of them, just look them up on a search engine. <laughs> <laughs> and most importantly, had some great times with my family exploring Europe and really getting comfortable in our new home. That is so good. And Chris is so modest. His books have won a lot of awards. His first book was called The First Minute. And it's so important. The First Minute, if you get that right, then everything else fall into place, really. And so that was a book. And then I think he has a workbook on that. And then he has another book on writing emails. So Chris is really in the know. And his specialty is that connection between technical and business and or non-technical. Since you lived, you know, in different places, you work with international companies. How do you see the world at work? How has it changed? And what are you seeing change, especially since we're, we're in the Q4 of 2023, you know, 2024 is almost here. And it's really the world has changed a lot. So what are you seeing from your point of view? It really has changed post COVID and how companies are adapting plus AI, such that it is, whether you call it machine learning or AI, that has taken a big role. So there are really two things. The first is the competing forces of work at home versus work in the office. And the second is how much should we use AI-based tools in our work? And those two topics are dominating the conversations. 
Now, there are a lot of other things being talked about, workplace culture and so on, but they often tie back to this work at home return to the office. Because when offices are demanding that people return, that's highlighting challenges in trust, workplace culture, and how can we be most productive? All those things are tied, I believe, back into that work from home or return to office. And then throw in some AI on top and we've got a whole new area to explore about risk. What do we do with data? Is it going to take our jobs away? I'd say those are the headline topics. Yes. Well, uh, uh, let's, let me just check with you where I stand. Of course, yeah, we, we've talked to people and worked with people. When we last spoke, everybody was working from home and it was two days a week and now it's three days a week and the companies really want the people back five. But right now, the compromise is three days in the office, two days at home here. Is that what you're seeing in Europe? A lot of Europe has gone fully back to the office I wonder, this is slightly tongue in cheek. I wonder if it's because people were relieved to get out of their homes that they'd been locked down in. The lockdowns during COVID were much stricter in Europe. Okay. And you literally couldn't leave your house without getting fined from the police. So there was a bit of relief that people could go back to the office. But we live in a global world. And a company tends to have a global policy and a global overarching policy. And it's really hard to distinguish one country from another when we have organizations that cross borders. Before we get into more of the tips, I want to just touch on the AI topic about the complexity. You know, I've had this on my mind. I was helping a client. I was editing a paper that she was writing about the cognitive load on engineers and how I, I think it was something like the engineers today are expected to know like three times as much or it's definitely like far more than they knew in the early 2000s or 20 years ago. First of all, that has to be tiring to have to be learning all that stuff. And then you mentioned the fear of losing your job. So as somebody who's studied and works heavily with engineering, how do you see that impacting communication? I'd like to first address the cognitive load part. I completely agree with you on this and take software engineering. In 2000, there were fewer software languages. There were a lot of them. It wasn't just one type of language. It was relatively new. Yes, it had been around for 30 years or so, but in universities, it was a relatively new topic in the mainstream. And so the courses were developing and every few years they would have to update the content. Well, the pace of change now means that university courses need to update their content annually to stay current. So it's a constant run to stand still. And a lot of innovation that happens outside of the academic area, it's happening in businesses, it's happening in startups, then takes time to filter through into universities. And there's a lag effect. Someone who's midway through a three-year program that hadn't got AI in it before ChatGPT became very common Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. suddenly out of date halfway through their degree. And so that automatically means there is more and different content to learn, which makes it harder. Beyond that, I feel we've actually got in life in general, not just in engineering, and I will come back to communication in a moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. But in life in general, we have a much higher cognitive load than 50, 100, 200 years ago. The amount of information that we need to know just to be considered vaguely informed today is vastly more than it was 50 or 100 years ago. 
Go back 100 years, people who had jobs had to know how to do their jobs. They didn't also have to know how to interact with the internet, have a vague idea what's happening in global politics, get really involved in the politics of their own country and all of the neighboring ones, know how to program the DVD player. I mean, even saying that, I've just dated myself because yes, it's not yeah. DVDs anymore. Right. <laughs> so the thing that I learned is now useless. I know, right. I need to know how to program my washing machine so it plugs into the same system that's connected to my fridge that talks to the internet. All of those things individually are small, but there are a lot of them. And because there is so much access to so many different forms of entertainment, type of tools that we need for our work or could use for our work, just the sheer volume of information we need is far higher, I believe, than at any point in history. And then we have access to essentially all the information from history, almost free. And that is overwhelming. How to choose what to focus on and not have fear of missing out is a constant challenge and I believe contributes general stress and challenge. Yeah, definitely the stress and that fear. And I consider myself moderately technologically savvy for a non-technical person. I don't know if that's kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth, but it's not everybody <laughs> has an easy time figuring out, you know, all the different connections. And I was just thinking as you were speaking of something is so basic, like today when we schedule meetings, we have to be so cognizant of different time zones. And before everybody was, you know, in the United States, we have three time zones. So you were maybe aware that your people in California were three hours behind. But now Dubai, Cape Town, Rio de Janeiro, all, you know, like. You're, you you're to- describing most of my working career. Actually. Yes. It's the early 2000s. Since the mid, mid 2000, 2005, I worked in international companies. Right. And was immediately exposed to the challenge of how do you set up a call with someone in New York and in Paris and in Seoul in Korea? How, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Spanning the globe. And that became a challenge. Fortunately, technology makes it a lot easier now if you have it set up correctly. But here's another, you know, to add to the cognitive load complexity. I mean, I'm sure you know cases in teams I am thinking of teams in California that they are expected to stay up late in order to meet with their, I guess, their teams in India or something. I mean, that's oh, just yes. a, a, an expectation. Yes, it's, the meeting's going to be at 9 p.m. And you have to be with your A game at 9 p.m. But you might also have to be on with your A game at a meeting the next morning at 8 a.m. Oh, yes. And when when you're looking at international like that, the bias tends to be for the Western home team. Right, right. And the expectation is the offshore teams, any team that's not in your base country. So often that is becomes India, Indonesia, any areas where there's a big tech presence, but not in Europe or America. The expectation is they will adapt their hours. I worked for a company in the States for a few years where a lot of the IT development was outsourced to a partner company. Well, so it was partnership rather than outsource, but partnered with a company in India. And because part of the culture in India is to find a way to get to yes, and to say yes rather than no, mm-hmm. to maintain a positive forward-looking approach, right. which is wonderful. Right. Part of the problem was they had staff working until 11 o'clock at night or midnight, and they had to implement a policy and ask for permission to pay to get taxis 
so the female employees could get home safely at midnight. And it took that situation for our organization in America to mm-hmm. realize just what a burden we were putting on right. people in a different time zone. And fortunately, our company handled it in a good way mm-hmm. and shifted right. it so that we would either alternate times and we mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. have off hours or outside right. of poor hours, or we would make sure that it was never after a certain time. And there was always a way to help all employees get right. home safely. Right. So that's just one aspect. So all of this to say, I mean, it's just the complexity, just the being cognizant of everybody's time zone and then the technologies and the speed. And that's another factor, the speed of response. And, you know, those of us who are not technical, like, well, these smart people will figure that out, but it's, it's not magic for anybody. It's just hard brain cracking work to get all these human-esque type behaviors out of a software code, you know, to get the software code to create the robot. I mean, it's not yes. hocus pocus. And I realized I, I didn't answer part of your earlier yeah. question, which is what does all this mean for communication? Yes. And so I'd like to tie communication and the cognitive load together. We're in a really positive and exciting opportunity filled time when it comes to improving communication skills. There are so many tools available that can provide instant feedback. Tools like Yodly, which is a Zoom plugin that can give you a literal count of when you're counting, um, saying ums and ahs. It can tell you when you're using bias language. For example, if I always said, hey guys, hey fellas, rather than hello everyone, and not being inclusive. You can get live feedback with prompts on the screen that tell you when you're being too aggressive with your tone of voice. And it's fantastic. Right. Big, big shout out for that tool, by the way. I think it's a, mm-hmm. a really useful tool. But when it comes to communication and having all of these options, we then come back to the cognitive overload is which one do you choose? And how many do you use and when? But not only that, but we get we get bombarded with more social media about good communication. Look at this great storyteller on stage. Here's how you create a perfect TED talk. Here's how your presentations can win every time. There's so much coming at us saying you should improve your communication you can improve your communication. And here are 3,000 ways to do it. (laughs) Exactly. So get to it. Exactly. (laughs) And so with all this opportunity, you should be doing better, which is additional pressure. The challenge comes back to where do we focus? And I believe there's a core issue with the way we talk about communication at work. And here's what it is. One of the top five skills that everybody needs when they apply for any job, because it's always listed in the top five, is good communication skills. The problem is that I believe there's no such thing as communication skills because communication is not a skill. And I'm going to say it in two ways. Okay. Communication is not a skill Mm -hmm. and communication is not a skill. Okay. (laughs) I get the first one. I'm, the first one is it's, it's lots of micro skills, let's say. Yes, right? there's lots of tools and techniques and right. methods. Right. And you can be good at speaking, but not at listening. You could be good at listening, but not speaking. And you could be. Oh, yes. You could be a fantastic negotiator. Great at negotiating a sales contract. Terrible at resolving conflict in your team. Exactly. Both require strong communication skills, but they require a different set of techniques and skills to be applied in a different way which is why the second emphasis is communication is not a skill, it's a situation. 
Ooh, okay. Communication is a situation in which, Laura, you and I want to pass information back and forth between each other for a particular purpose. Correct. I mentioned two other situations, negotiating a sales contract versus reducing conflict in a team. Communication is a situation. And in that situation, you need to pick the right blend of skills and techniques and apply them in the right way to get the successful outcome for that situation. And this is what makes communication so complex. It's almost like cooking. You need a (laughs) recipe book. What is the outcome, the dish, the communication dish that you want to create? Right, right. And then you need some base ingredients, and then you sprinkle on some extra levels of particular techniques or skills. Right. And all of this is requiring some time to think about it, which is what everybody doesn't have is that time. Or I don't know the agenda. How can I prepare? I would just got this invitation and I need to show up and I have no idea what it's about. Exactly. And when we're trying to improve our communication skills, where do you start? Right. And as an industry, you and I have our opinions as to where to start and what is beneficial. But for the person out there trying to raise their game and they Mm -hmm. know their communication should be better, so where do they start? Well, start by identifying the communication situations Mm -hmm, that you mm -hmm. want to improve and then go and find the skills that will help you do better in those situations. Uh, That's very good. Yeah, because it's so true that everybody has their areas where it's easier for them. And some people are great storytellers, but they may be talk too much in a meeting and, you know, all everybody, I don't need to spell those out. Well, you know, your first book, the first minute was, I think, helpful for people to focus on that first minute, which in a way forces you to analyze the situation and what is your purpose in this particular communication situation. Are you still behind that or have you changed your thinking or tell us about the first minute? Oh, yes, I'm still absolutely behind it. No matter what communication situation I'm engaging with, teaching with, learning about, it's almost always the first thing we need to do. Let's take a real example. Someone has fantastic vocal variety. They are Shakespearean in the way that they can command their voice from the stage. And they have wonderful control of their body and their stage presence. If they have those two really great skills, but they cannot get to the point, it doesn't matter how wonderful they sound. They're going to lose the audience or they'll get to the end and the audience will go, wow, that felt really good. But what did he say? Yes, it's so true. (laughs) Yes. So whatever I teach, the first minute is always important. And from my business perspective, it is the core of my business. It's the most commonly requested topic. And I've been very fortunate. The first minute is about to pass 50,000 copies sold. Bravo. Thank you. It's phenomenal to get it out to so many people and in lots of different languages. So you also asked, what is it? Well, for anyone who hasn't listened to our previous episode, and I really do think you should go back and listen to every single episode in these podcasts because they are all so valuable. There you go. Thank you, Chris. We are going to link Chris's first episode with us uh, in the show notes. And it really was good. And as I mentioned, I, I, as a coach, use his GPS every single day. So yeah, Chris, is, he's got the goods. All right. So tell us about the first thing. Continue. Okay. So what is the first minute about? Well, the book is about a framework to help you start any conversation, also emails and meetings clearly and concisely. 
And there are two frameworks in it. One is called framing, which is how to set up the conversation and give your audience three key things that they need for them to understand what's coming next. And the second method you've mentioned a few times is called GPS, goal, problem, solution. It's how to create a summary of almost anything that you would want to talk about at work. It does work outside of work as it well. It does. It's, and you can use it for a presentation, for a conversation, for a one-on-one, for answering a question. I mean, it is just, uh, it is the Swiss army knife of it, communication. I love that. The Swiss army knife. I did mention a moment ago that framing gives three critical things. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who's listening to this and thinking, wow, I mean, you haven't actually told me what framing is. <laughs> right. Framing is a three-part technique, and it's context, intent, and key message. The context is the topic that you want to talk about. The intent is what you intend for the other person to do with the information that you're giving. And the key message is the headline. And the reason these are so important is whenever someone is talking to us, we need three questions to be answered if we're going to understand and pay attention. The first question is, what are you talking about? That's context. Are you talking about a project or are you talking about next week's dinner plans? Right. So what are you talking about? That's context. The second one is, why are you telling me this? Right. And that's intent. If you've ever listened to someone and you're a couple of minutes in and you're just thinking, why are you telling me this? Is this a funny story? Do you need something from me? Is the building on fire? What Why? What am I meant to do with this information? Right. But when you don't get the answer, then you tune out. Yes. There's real science behind why that happens. Not just Chris mm-hmm. says it so that it happens. Oh, okay. real well, as Chris, what Chris says it is good for me. But yeah, I'm glad to know there's real science. Behind there it. is. We have something called working memory. And it's, okay. it's a buffer. It's about, we can receive about 15 to 20 seconds of information before we need to know what to do with it. Because our brains are complex and different areas of our brains process information differently. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. ask me a question, one part of my brain will fire up. If you tell me a funny story, a different part of my brain mm-hmm. will start to process that information. But if we don't know what to do with the information, our brain doesn't know which part to fire up. And it gets stuck with this working memory, asking the question of, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? What do I do with it? And until we know that, we can't efficiently process what we're hearing. So that's the second second one. So we've had, the first one was, what what are you talking about? That's the context. Right. For intent, it's why are you telling me this? Mm Mm-hmm. And then the key message is, what's your point? Mm-hmm. You get five minutes into hearing somebody talk to you and you still don't know what the point is. Because right. they didn't have a headline. They didn't have a really succinct summary at the beginning. That's the question of what, what, like, what is your point? That's why you need a key message. And all of that makes it difficult to be concise. You know, I think that's uh, something that technical people struggle with. I mean, and non-technical people. But when you say that now it's harder for people to filter out, we talked about this earlier, like the need to filter the information. I've had so many discussions with people, well, Laura, but they need to understand this thing and how it works. And I'm thinking, I don't think they really do. No, no, they don't. (laughs) They don't. I have a, a little module in one of the courses that I teach, and it's about how to simplify messages. The first two things you mentioned are are getting people's attention. That can be done by making your message relevant and relatable. And we can definitely go into that. 
But the how is a great technique that can help us avoid going too much into the how. And it's called the magic box. Of all the small techniques, it is my absolute favorite. When you're presenting an idea, and an easy way to think of this is if you worked in manufacturing or a technical thing and you wanted to build a widget and you had an idea for a product or a widget. When presenting that idea, all too often people talk about how it works. This is how it works. This is how we're going to make it. This is how it functions. The end user doesn't care. What the end user wants is a magic box that does magic things that produces the result. And here's a great example of the magic box. And everyone has these, I'm pretty sure, within arm's reach. If you've got a mobile phone or a cell phone, you have a magic box. And I'm pretty confident in this next statement. No one listening to this knows how that magic box works. Nope. <laughs> and they don't care and they how don't the magic care. box works. Right. They, they don't. just care that it works. They care Correct. that they can play their apps, call their nan, get the train times, order their shopping, watch funny videos, communicate with. That's what the magic mm-hmm. box does. Right. Right. At no point when being sold a phone do you need to know how it works. Right. And that is one of the best techniques to test whether or not we're communicating clearly. If you want to communicate an idea, if you've got a proposal, if you've got an idea for a product, if you've got an idea for a change to improve something in your team, don't talk about how you're going to build it, et cetera, et cetera. That comes after. Talk about what it does. Put all the detail in a magic box and say to your audience, here's a problem that we need to solve. And here's the magic box that will solve it. Oh, that is so cool. And then and then you just get to that later. And also, I think that something that people logically struggle with in, say, a meeting or a presentation is that there's people with different levels of technical competency in the audience. And then they'll say, well, but I know that my CIO or CTO, he wants to know or she has to know how it works. They may want to know what's in the magic box, but not when you're like in pitching mode, right? Exactly. When explaining an idea, we might get a question back that says, well, well, how does that work? Mm-hmm. And if you're getting it from a technical expert who right. actually wants to know about the inner workings of it, you can answer. If you're getting it from any non-technical team, we interpret that question incorrectly. How does it work? Doesn't mean tell me about the wiring and the software. It means tell me what it does. How does it achieve an outcome for us? And if I'm not sure that's what you want, I can ask this question. Do you want to know what it does or how it does it? Ooh. Okay, let me repeat that. I want to give a little sound effect. This is is so cool. So if you, because this is a question that comes up in so many technical business conversation. So do you want to know what it does or how it does it? Is that right? That's right. And there's another question. So there's Ah. two ways you can do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you want to know how to use it or how it works? Oh, how to use it or how it works. That is such a great clarify. I would call that a clarifying question, right? Yes. It gets to clarity. 
Yes, that is so valuable. All right, everybody. I know you're thinking, how is this free, Laura? This is so valuable. How did Laura bring us this man with his magic boxes and <laughs> magical questions to ask? I don't know. It is a blessing indeed. All right. So this clarifying question helps people when you're addressing a broad audience or an audience of mixed levels of expertise. Make them ask you for the technical details, right? Yes. Yes, that's it. You only open the magic box if they want to see inside it. And when they do, you don't go down to the tiny levels. It's full of other little magic boxes. Uh, Using the phone example. Right. Uh, Yeah, so the phone, what's it got inside it? Well, it's got a screen. It's got some stuff that'll connect to the internet. It's got a battery. It's got something for processing the information. That's still very high level. Mm -hmm. And I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about, well, it uses this particular technology and this bandwidth to connect to the, so I've just opened the box and given a little peek inside. Mm -hmm. What particular thing would you like to know more about? And Uh, if there's a mixed audience, you can always say, can we talk about that later? Right. Exactly. Chris has given us the keys to start any conversation on a, or message really doesn't have to be, can be a presentation. It's like really getting clear on your purpose, on the context, on the intent, on your key message, which does take some thought. But I think, and I'm, this is uh, the world according to Laura, that if you start this process, it will become second nature and it won't be an extra cognitive load. It will be just something that you do. But let's switch to emails because you're now also an email. So you clarified how people can talk to each other more fruitfully. And then they were saying, well, Chris, but what about the email? So like, yes. what was the process? Why did it not work just to apply, you know, GPS, context, intent, and key message to emails? Like, why did that need to be specifically addressed? There's definitely a crossover. So context, intent, and key message turn up in slightly different language. So there's been a little evolution. Emails and meetings work on topic, purpose, and output. Mm -hmm. But topic and purpose relate very closely to context and intent. There's a real overlap there, and that's, that's covered in the first minute. What's different is email has other factors that conversations don't. Mm -hmm. When you have a conversation with someone, you're in front of them, and they know you want to talk to them. Right. An email is vying for attention amongst hundreds of other emails in an inbox. So true. So true. So Emails true. have group and email chains where you've got asynchronous communication where someone might reply to a message from three replies ago and things are out of sequence and it's written. And so there's a visual format that doesn't come in conversation. Those extra things warranted an additional level of guidance and simple frameworks to help address some of those some of those problems you don't really have in a conversation. Okay. So it's just really thinking through the same process, but it was just a slightly different methodology. Is that, is that how we write better email? There are like- definitely similarities. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it starts at the beginning by getting the beginning right. Mm-hmm. So in the book, Effective Emails, the first third of the book is actually about the subject line and the introduction, which are three lines of the email, but they influence so much. A meaningless subject line means your message doesn't get opened, which means you don't get a reply. Right. An introduction that doesn't state or make it clear to the reader why they should read it and what they might need to do greatly reduces the chance you'll get a reply. 
So the start of it is important, just like the first minute. Right. So the subject line, do you believe in putting the call to action in the subject line? Or what is your formula or your approach to a really juicy subject line that's going to get people to open it? Yes. I'm going to tackle the word juicy first by saying never use clickbait. Never put a subject line <laughs> that would say five free vacation days. Oh, I'm going to open that. By the way, I need you to work overtime on Sunday. Like, ah, no, don't ever do, <laughs> don't do that. So don't do that. All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, so don't do clickbait, don't deceive. The formula for a subject line is urgency, topic, and purpose. Mm-hmm. And urgency is only when it's really urgent. Mm-hmm. Because if you put urgent at the beginning of every email, For everything, yeah. it just blends in. So if there is true urgency, indicating that at the very front of the subject line means it's the first thing people will see and it'll stand out. Let's assume we're just doing everyday emails now. Mm-hmm. Topic mm-hmm. plus purpose. So Laura, I'd like to talk to you about today's. So the subject line would be Wednesday's podcast recording. Please answer these questions. Okay, that's a pretty lengthy subject line. You can shorten it a little bit. And there, there are guidelines for having short subject lines because they right. get truncated on our phones and our screens and oh, fighting yeah. for everything else. Yeah. But what I could say is then Wednesday's podcast, questions for you. Okay, okay, yeah. I like that you questioned that because a good subject line isn't necessarily the first thing that you write. And so it's okay to go and revise it and think about length. And is it clear? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it was just when you said urgency, topic, and purpose, I'm thinking, well, that's like a sent at least that's a pretty complex sentence. If I said, Chris, I need to talk to you about this project because I'm not sure what action I need to take and I need your help on this. I mean, that would be like that's long. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> grammar goes out of the window with the subject yeah. line. It doesn't have to be grammatically correct. Right. Let's see if I can do it in in seven or eight short words. I could say, urgent, today's podcast, change time. Can we change time? Uh Urgent, today's podcast, can we change time? So seven words. And I've conveyed a lot of information that you can look at and prioritize against all the other stuff in your inbox. Right. Maybe being longer is not necessarily bad as long as it doesn't get truncated. But people do want to know, they need to know, like, where do I put my time? I have, you know, I just came back from the bathroom and 17 new emails came in. What do I open first? And what do you think about, again, how much detail to put into an email? Depends on the purpose of the email. Okay. If the purpose of the email is to answer a question, if I had a client come back and say, can you please review these five pages? Well, you know what? I'm going to send back five pages. That's what they've asked me to review. But generally, shorter is better. I think it's a fun little study. Others can judge this for themselves. The Boston Globe did an experiment a few years ago where they sent out emails to over 100,000 people and tracked the read rates and the response rates. And they split the group into two and they sent one email that was 150 words. Not a lot. That's two thirds of a page of a book. But it's actually quite short compared to a lot of emails we get at work. Right, right. 150 words. And they sent a second email that began and ended exactly the same, but they cut out some of the stuff in the middle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They didn't change anything. They just cut out in the middle. 
the read rate for the email and the response rate were almost double. Wow. And you said and the, the longer one was 150 words? 150 words. That's and then not, the, yeah, that's it's really not, not a lot. That, they got it lot. down to, I believe, 50 or 60. I need to check the number, but right. a low number. And it doubled. Wow. The read, and they got a 60%, I think 60% more readers and right. 100% more responses. Wow, that's that's very impa- impactful. I have two questions. I'm going to give you two questions. One is about, let's say I'm a hardworking, highly conscientious, I do the work, high performance reviews. My boss knows that give it to Laura, it'll be done well. But then when it comes to promotion, it's like, well, I don't really think she has leadership material. I'm not, I don't know. How can communication help that person? And that's question number one. And question number two, what about preparing for intimidating audiences? Okay. So for the first one, to help people communicate the value of their work and show that they have these skills, the first is be proactive. I recently read some advice from Alex Lyon. He's a communications professor at Sunny Brockport, and he summed up this method beautifully said you can improve your communication visibility in simple ways. For example, when a leader asks for an update, volunteer to send the email. Mm -hmm. If your team is going to submit something, volunteer to be the one who submits it. Your Mm -hmm. name will literally appear on the screen of the leaders. And do that enough times, you become a name that they recognize rather than a name that's just buried in the CC. Right, right. Right. Small things like that can improve your visibility. And when you are top of mind, people will think of you more often. And that can help. Right. The second thing to show the value of your work in the way that you communicate is to communicate the value of your work. We're going back to what it does, not how it does it. So if you're talking to other teams and someone said, so what have you been working on? Talk about what you've been working on from the perspective of value to them. We've been doing some software updates that mean the custom service system is faster and addresses problems in a more smooth way and has reduced the cost for another particular team. Say that instead of, we improved 100,000 lines of code. Brilliant. Absolutely (laughs) great that you did that. Who cares? Right. Your team does, but how does the rest of the business see you? They see you because you improved efficiency, quality, safety, compliance, financial outcomes. So talk about the value of your work when you're asked about it. Just to add on to that, not only is that a more interesting and persuasive message, it's also easier to repeat out. Because I believe that we should, you know, if you're the junior person, you need to be feeding people true statements talking points that they can talk so that when their boss or some colleague says, oh, how's that Chris Finning doing? Then you can say, oh, he just created this feature that's going to save these people time. And, you know, you know, it's just easier to remember and it's easier to ripple out a message about the value of what it does. Because everybody understands it. Right. And that's that demonstrates leadership because leaders don't talk about the nuts and bolts. They talk about what the nuts and bolts deliver. All right, Chris, you're going to have the last word. 
You're talking to the best looking crowd of highly conscientious high performers you have ever spoken to. Is there something that you want to leave our listeners, our highly engaged audience that I haven't asked you? So many things, but I will, I will go for just the one. The first step to improve your communication skills is identify the specific situation you want to work on. Then go and find the tools and techniques that will produce a better outcome in those situations. Don't try and find the one size fits all. Not all communication skills advice is good for all situations. Right. So if right. you are regularly giving presentations, work on presentation skills. If you're regularly negotiating, work on negotiation skills. And of course, everybody should learn to get to the point. And I do think, let's say you focus on presentations. I think that uh, some of what you incorporate in that process of becoming a better presenter is going to trickle out and ripple out into your other communication. But trying to do, be all things to all people and improve all of communication skills, I mean, nobody can do that. This has been tremendous, Chris. Thank you so much. To our listeners, as usual, I will annoy you by saying you're welcome. I bring you the best and that's just what I do. Hope everybody has a great day and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.